This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Essentially, in no county in America do Black residents, on average, perform as well as their white neighbors. And I say this not with any gloom or pessimism for the future, but more so as an important reminder and to underscore, for me, the point that race and place still matter. And if we really want to change this reality, we need to confront both head on. That's McKinsey partner J.P. Julian. He's here to talk about McKinsey's recent research on the state of Black residents. McKinsey recently published its State of Black U.S. Residents Report, which divides the Black demographic into several groups, including the urban core, the suburbs and exurbs, the mixed middle, and low growth in rural areas. Overall, the report found that there's nowhere in the United States where outcomes for Black residents equal those of their white neighbors. Those places that do come close to parity are the small rural counties where outcomes are poor for all residents, regardless of race. The goal of the report is to help investors, companies, philanthropies, and public sector leaders decide where and how to act. McKinsey partner J.P. Julian is here to tell us more about the findings. J.P., welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. How does the report define acceptable levels of prosperity and well-being? So the report really focuses on trying to answer kind of a fundamental question. And that is, to what extent do Black residents living in places have what they and ultimately all families need to thrive? And so we anchor that research on a few core aspirations that we believe all families, regardless of race, need to reach their full potential. And so that's everything from a basic standard of living and not having to live and raise your children in poverty to job opportunities, particularly ones with real opportunities for advancement and a career, health, including physical and mental well-being, stable and secure housing, including the choice to affordably own or rent, and a few others. And so to your question, what we do is then look to see to what extent are Black residents able to achieve those aspirations, both in absolute and relative terms? So we look at these outcomes for Black residents and see to what extent Black residents in different community archetypes and places, as you mentioned, are not able to achieve those outcomes. We then also examine how Black residents are doing compared to their white neighbors. Now, what's interesting about this research in particular is rather than looking at this at an aggregate national level, we answer this question for over 3,000 counties in the U.S., And what we find is, as we examine resident outcomes within and across different community profiles, it begins to help us understand how different places correlate with different outcomes. One of the most interesting pieces of the research is that America's suburbs have the best balance of overall positive outcomes and parity for Black residents. What factors allow for such a positive net gain for the Black population in these suburban communities? I think the reason for this are twofold. The first is proximity. So more than half of these suburbs are located outside of what we call megacities or high growth hubs. So these are the places in the US that produce the nation's highest GDP. So black residents living in these areas, you know, benefit from access to that growing economy. Those economies often have diverse and resilient sectors, great job and career prospects, and at the same time, providing them access to social and relational capital, institutions, ideas, etc. Now, While they have that proximity, they also avoid some of the challenges that are inherent in city living. So high housing costs, higher cost of living, more challenge and stretch fiscal budgets. The second that I'd mentioned, though, is history. It's no secret 
that the American suburbs are where and how we as a nation have historically made big investments to build the middle class. I think the reality is that historically, many of these suburbs have been unavailable to black residents, but it's these attributes that they contain, quality schools, neighborhood amenities, access to affordable homeownership that have helped black families that have been able to reach them in recent years do better than their counterparts. While black residents are doing better in the suburbs, black resident outcomes are only 64% of white resident suburban outcomes. The suburbs are also only home to about 12% of black Americans compared to about 19% of white residents and 17% of all US residents. And so in some degree, the suburbs, yes, uh, black residents are doing better, but not nearly as well as they could and with some meaningful levels of underrepresentation. So America's suburbs have shown a fairly decent balance of uh, positive outcomes and parity for black residents. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Where do we see some of the more challenging outcomes in the United States? Some of the most challenging outcomes on an absolute basis are actually kind of in more rural counties. Much of this is attributed to many of these communities lacking or having challenged economic environments. And so if we think about job prospects, the ability for folks in those communities to think about career opportunities, entrepreneurship and innovation, their fundamental economy is a bit challenged. And so it creates a really hard headwind for Black residents that live there in terms of their economic success. The report found that it would take, and I quote, three centuries to get the places with the worst outcomes for Black residents on par with the best outcomes for white residents today. So where do we start to help shrink this time frame? How do we start to address this, JP? It was a sobering finding for sure. One thing I'll note just before jumping into kind of how to close that gap is I do want to take a moment to share some good news. And that news is that we have seen progress. So in 73% of U.S. counties uh, that we examined, Black residents actually saw outcomes improve on an absolute basis over the past decade. Now, what's challenging and ultimately driving that kind of 300-year difference is less than half saw reductions to racial disparities. So gaps are actually increasing. And so when I look at that, it says to me, it's not that we aren't making progress on Black resident outcomes, it's that we aren't doing so fast enough. And fundamentally, I think that's an issue of unequal starting points. So whether that's in wealth, opportunity, social capital exposure, where you start has real implications for what the future might hold. In our country, advantages and disadvantages really do compound. And so I think a lot of the solutions of how we close that gap are, what are the ways in which we can shrink gaps that put residents on a more equal footing? We talk about holistic change, but we also need to kind of look, what is it, place-based sort of interventions that can take place. So let's talk a little bit about some of the potential solutions. I know in the report, we talk about housing and pre-K in particular. So maybe let me start with how does targeting improvements in affordable housing help close this gap? Housing is really fundamental for two reasons. The first is purely economic. So housing is the single largest expense for families. And too often families are simply paying too much just to have a home. So nearly half of Americans spend more than 30% of their income on rent and a quarter are spending more than half on rent. When you then look at black residents, 60% are spending more than 30% of their income, and 30% are spending more than half. The second important reason, though, is geographic, right? Where you live shapes what you have access to. It's a simple fact, but it's an actual fact that matters. And so what jobs look like, how good your school system is, 
what exposure you might have to violence, pollutants, you name it. Mm-hmm. It's also something that I know I've lived personally, and maybe many others that may be listening have this experience where I have seen kind of the impact that an address can have in real terms. Maybe just get a little bit of my own personal background. Yeah. I grew up the middle of five kids in Essex County, New Jersey, proud Jersey resident, born and raised. My parents immigrated here from Trinidad, came here in hopes, hopes for more for themselves and their family. And for the first nine years of my life, we lived in some challenging economic environments. So neighborhoods where the poverty rate was two to three times the state average, business investment was non-existent, food access wasn't great. And when I was nine, we moved you know, maybe a 10-mile drive down the Garden State Parkway to a middle-class suburb. And overnight, the quality of my school improved. My mom's commute to work dropped by an hour. We had a grocery store and a bank minutes away. And that was all made possible by my parents and my aunt and uncle pooling their funds and purchasing a two-family home in this suburb. And so even as a nine-year-old, I immediately saw the difference that an address can make, and it's had a huge impact. And so we often say, you know, place matters in economic mobility, but fundamentally, housing is the key ingredient to that. And so if we think about solutions, housing has to be on the table in terms of changing outcomes. It sort of reminds me of the related research on the impacts of climate in certain parts Mm -hmm. of the Southeast Mm -hmm. state. And a lot of factors come into play here. Going back to this report about U.S. Black residents, how do interventions in early childhood education, how could that help close the gap? So we know that high quality early childhood education improves the likelihood of high school and college attainment, results in lower rates of substance abuse and incarceration, and just generally higher rates of economic well-being. But I think secondly, early childhood is a big economic factor for families. So about half of families opt to pay for childcare. And for black families, that ends up accounting for about 23% of their income and 15% of white residents' income, which as we all know who manage a budget, that is a significant portion of kind of what a household might be dealing with. The other kind of important downstream implication of that though is what that then means for who is able to work outside of the home. And too often, the hard choice of either paying for an exorbitant amount in childcare and going to work or staying home and providing unpaid care results in women exiting the labor market. There's also this post-COVID, a lot of daycare centers closed. I'm just curious if the economic effects of COVID are sort of factored into this report and, and maybe if there are specific data points that you've seen around that. We have heard in discussions as we've published this research on just how real those impacts have been for Black residents, particularly Mm -hmm. the pandemic. So one data point in particular that stands out is if you look at something like life expectancy, it increased more than two years in terms of the gap between Black and white residents, such that today a Black resident lives on average 5.6 years less than a white resident. And a big driver of that was the disproportionate impact of the pandemic and what that has meant. If you look at something like childcare, for example, what that then means for who's able to be in the labor market. I think what we've seen is as childcare centers and the childcare economy has faced pressure, as you mentioned, centers closing, not being able to expand capacity, that has, again, squeezed to what extent families are able to find those paid options to manage both responsibilities at home and at work. I think the other illuminating thing that we all probably felt, I have two young kids of my own, is just how hard it is to try to do both of those things, to provide childcare and work, even if it's remotely, it's really impossible. So in some ways, I think the one maybe bright spot is the pandemic has really shown a light on just how fractured our childcare system is 
and made it a felt reality for many people. And so I think in some ways it's been maybe a bright spot for folks to really think about what are the big investments we can make to support families as they navigate the important job of raising a family, but also being a part of the labor market in a sustainable and long-term way. To that end, let's shift the conversation a little bit over to potential solutions, right, or approaches to addressing the issues here. Can you cite examples of places or organizations that may already be taking steps to eliminate gaps in the outcomes between Black and white residents? On the public sector side, what's been interesting is if you look at a place like Fresno, California, five years ago or so, the Central Valley Community Foundation really led this effort in partnership with large employers, government community activists to build what they call the region's inclusive and vibrant economy or a plan for it. And basically ask the community, what is it that we need to experience economic mobility and to really support our economy? And it was everything from cradle to career education, affordable housing, investments to reinvent their traditional agricultural economy. And what I love about that example is it was a self-organized process in which communities said, things aren't working well here. How do we do it better? And how do we do it with the voice and aspirations and solutions of all residents, not just a few. And they've been able to use that planning process to really catalyze large-scale investment from the state. The second example I'll give you is Discover Financials, if any of you have a Discover card. They recently demonstrated a real commitment to place. What they did was they were essentially considering where they should open a new customer care center, essentially a call center. And rather than thinking about Closing racial disparities is a nice thing to do. They really thought about this as how do we make this a strategic advantage for our business? And so what they did was they invested and opened a new location on the south side of Chicago and opened in August of 2022. They employ about 1,000 people. Over 80% of those people live within five miles of the center. And so if you think about what that means for reduced commute times, allowing families to spend time with their kids at home, making actual physical investments in a place that often doesn't get those investments. And what's been powerful is they've seen, yes, the call center does just as well on customer satisfaction, but they do even better on employer retention. So JP, the findings suggest that overall quality of life has improved for Black residents, and yet this racial gap remains. And we've talked about the kind of incredibly long time frame that we believe would be required to close the gap. What's happening in white communities that's causing a continued economic rise. To the point I mentioned earlier, I think it really is the case that advantages compound. So maybe pick an example. The Federal Reserve recently released its latest wealth survey, which they do every three years. And what we find is that black wealth actually increased, which is a great thing. So from 27K to about 45K. But what also happened is white wealth increased. And it did so much faster than black wealth. And part of that distinction is just the exposure to which assets white families versus black families have access to. Mm-hmm. Nearly a 30% of white wealth, but only 4% of black wealth was essentially in corporate stocks and equity. And so I think this is a case where advantage begets advantage. And so it's not to say that in any of this, do we want residents to do worse? Actually, their continued rising is a good thing, but it more so begs the question of how do we make investments? such that Black residents are able to overcome what we know is a more challenged starting point. You'd mentioned a few places, JP, where there are positive signs here and there. But overall, is the economic state of Black residents trending in the right direction? I'd say yes and no. In one sense, yes, we've seen real progress. As I mentioned, 
73% of U.S. counties saw absolute improvements. Taking another data point, even zooming out a bit, in 1990, almost a third of Black families lived below the poverty line. Today, that number is less than 20%, which, again, is material for what it means for people's quality of life and something to be celebrated. Why I say a bit no is that less than half the counties that we saw actually saw reductions in racial disparities. And I think on a few dimensions, we're actually seeing some concerning backsliding. So as I mentioned, life expectancy where that gap is actually widened. Similarly, with home ownership, in 1980, 58% of Black residents owned their home. Today, just about 44% do. And so if we think about that as a mechanism for wealth building and what that might mean, I think there are some areas where not only is there not progress, there's actually some reverse movement that I do find challenging. Was there anything else that surprised you about the findings in the report or some particular data point that stood out? Or we've talked about a lot of the data, but anything was particularly surprising to you? The one that really stood out was that essentially in no county in America do Black residents on average perform as well as their white neighbors. Only a tenth of 1% of U.S. counties are Black resident outcomes within 90% or better of their white counterparts. And so that was surprising just given the absolute nature of that analysis. And I say this not with any gloom or pessimism for the future, but more so as an important reminder and to underscore, for me, the point that race and place still matter. And if we really want to change this reality, we need to confront both head on. So we've talked a lot about the findings. We've talked about potential solutions. How should key stakeholders, you know, the public sector, private sector, leaders in Black communities, how should they use this report? What should they do with these findings? I think at the very basic level, we want folks to appreciate the reality. There are times when we collectively maybe fool ourselves into thinking that we live in this post-racial America where disparities aren't a real thing and a figment of our imagination. I think part of what has been illuminating for us in this work is race and place still matter. And it's not to hark on the past, but actually is to use that as insight into what we might do moving forward. Secondly, when we look at the examples of where we've seen real economic progress, it often comes with at-scale, sustained public and private investment. So whether that's in our housing markets, in post-secondary education, and how we support innovation and entrepreneurship as a country. And so for me, I, I hope this research provides a bit of a sense check on the reality, but also a bit of a catalyst for finding specific ways that public, private, and social sector can actually work together to change this reality. Appreciate you taking the time, JP, to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And download the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 